All right. We just prayed for PA students, and now we're going to pray for this message in the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this particular book in the Bible, Ephesians. It's so rich. It can and will change our lives if we would but just pay attention. And Lord, as we come to church this morning, we've all had a week. We've all got aches and pains in various places and things that might trouble us as we think about the week ahead or even the day ahead. Lord, I pray that you would remove those things from us. Lord, help us to hone in on your word. Lord, in my flesh, Lord, I would probably desire that people would say, wow, what a great message. Jerry, that was really, really good. And I pray, oh God, that that would not happen. I pray that we would always deflect praise and glory back to you, that we would decrease, that Christ might increase. And as I often pray, oh God, may my words fall to the ground and only what is from you, may it just sear our hearts this morning. Change us, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, quick review. You know me, I always do some kind of review. So three sections of Ephesians. We're still in the first section. You've got um, your position, and we're spending time in position really all the way up until June. Okay, so you've got your position, and then we're going to jump into, once we understand our position, then we're going to do practice, and then we're going to look at protection, and that's going to be in Ephesians 6. The past two weeks, uh, Sam has hit two important topics for us. The first topic that he hit was the fact that we are in Christ. Being in Christ is everything. It's everything. I'm not going to rehash the sermon. If you didn't hear it, go back and look at it. Um, everything that he's saying in this whole position, chapters 1, 2, 3, goes back to not how we see ourselves, but how God sees us because of what Jesus has done. That's critical, critical, critical if you want to understand Christianity. And then last week, he walked us through this amazing prayer at the end of chapter 1. He prays for the church that, um, that their eyes, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they would know this hope that they have because of what Christ has done that they would understand their calling because of what Christ has done, that they would understand, I love this word, this immeasurable, that's a word for you, immeasurable greatness of God's power in our life. So the question for you guys is, why? What was purpose, you know, Paul's purpose for that prayer? Do you remember? Why did he, what, what was the purpose of that prayer? Anybody want to say so that we would what? <laughs> You're peeking your head around the corner like... Praying for one another so that the end result would be that we would what? Christ is here and that we would grow in our, fill in the blank, relationship. Not religion, but relationship. Religion, we do, we, we do, we do, we do. Relationship as we grow and we grow and we grow. So Paul's prayer at the end, end of Ephesians 1 is that they wouldn't get sucked into religion and doing and doing and doing and doing, but they would see hope. You know, they would see what Christ has done and who they are in Christ and that ultimately this power that he, that he has within us, but they would grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the power. That's the purpose of Redstone Church Elizabeth. And that's the purpose of us going through Ephesians is that we would understand and that the more we would understand, the more we would love him. 
and walk with him and serve him. It's about relationship. So yes, with that as our backdrop, we are entering into uncharted territory. We're going into chapter two. Y'all didn't think that was going to come, did you? It's been, what, nine or ten weeks or something like that in chapter one. Remember that it is the glory of the God for us to have relationships, so that's the thing I want you to hang on to. So Paul's now going to take us a step back to remind the Ephesians church, the church at Ephesus, where they were before Christ, okay, before they came to him. Um, and it reminds me, of, as, you, as he look, looks back on his life and as they look back on their life, it reminds me of the first few lines of the book or the movie, the Christmas story. Do you remember the Christmas story? It starts out and it says, Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. That's the beginning of the book. And in this passage, it is if Paul is saying, each of you were spiritually dead, there is no doubt whatsoever about that. And that's where we're going to get, begin this morning. And we're going to look at this doctrine that's called total depravity and how we were, I think this is in your guide if you want to write it down, how we were dead, how we were disobedient, and ultimately we were doomed. And I'm calling my little teaching today for myself, if no one else, we were the walking dead, okay? So we're going to go through the passage that Tavis read a few moments ago, and we're going to go through the whole thing, but we're going to go in these bite-sized chunks, because I want you to see the things that I have seen as I was working through this. So let's work our way back through the passage. Okay. I've got the reds there for a reason as I go back and highlight these. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. There's more to come, but let's just stop right there. So Paul begins by jumping into the heart of our spiritual condition before we heard, applied, understood the gospel. He doesn't say that we were strugglers. He doesn't say that we were inconsistent. He doesn't say anything like that. He's a pretty straightforward guy. So Paul goes right to you know, the meat of the matter, and he says that we were dead. Now, to clarify, that doesn't mean that they were physically dead and any more than it means that we are physically dead. We're talking about a spiritual condition before God that is none other than death itself, which is why I say that we were the walking dead, very much alive, but spiritually very dead. Not the most uplifting sermon that you're ever going to hear, at least not on the front end because we're going to paint a vivid picture of our hearts and our minds before salvation. And it's going to hurt. I won't leave us there, I promise. Before the end, I'll take us back to the glorious gospel, and then resurrection is just around the corner next week, and I can't wait. So I have a, a Mormon friend, and I remember years ago, he and I were having a conversation, and... Um, he looked at me and said, Jerry, we basically believe the same things as you all do. I said, okay, well, here's a question for you. And this is a key question. It's a key question for you as well. Do you believe that mankind is born into this world as sinless or that we're born into this world as sinners? Just left it there. He said, well, I think that we are born into this world pure 
sinless and that it's the world that taints us. That's how we become sinners. And I said, stop right there. That's where we differ. That's it. That's where we differ. Okay? And, and you'll see this. I'm not going to unpack it in this one moment, but you'll hear it as we go through Scripture. Scripture is pretty clear that we were born into this world as sinners, transgressors of God's law. And it's critical, if you are an unbeliever or if you're searching and seeking, that you understand this part of humanity and of the human heart before the gospel will ever mean anything to you. The gospel is no gospel if you think that you are okay. This is what Psalm 51 says and Romans 5.1. Psalm 51 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through the one man, which is talking about Adam, and death through sin, spiritually dead, so death spread to all men, and that's talking about women as well, all of humanity, because all have sinned. So just to be clear, we are all born in sin, every one of us. We have new babies in our congregation, and we have four more on the way, and they will be beautiful, adorable little bundles of sin when they come into this world, right? I understand that that is true. We will love them well, but they will not have to ever be taught how to covet or how to be disrespectful. They, it's already in their sin nature. There's only one that's ever been born sinless and remain that way unto death. And we'll talk more about that next week. But let's continue in the passage. Ephesians 1, 1 through 3. Look at who he is addressing. He says, notice the red, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, it's in our nature, all of us, children of wrath, like who? Like the rest of mankind. You, we all, by nature, like the rest of mankind. I think that pretty much covers it, which is why Romans 3.23 can say to us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's because we are all born in sin and we're spiritually dead. And listen, people, if we are spiritually dead, we have no ability to resurrect ourselves or to make ourselves come alive. None. Nada. Zero. We're hopeless. We're helpless. We're lifeless. Completely dead. Dead, dead. You got me? spiritually, spiritually dead. People don't like to hear that, and our world rejects this notion because we want to think that we're good people. Now, don't get me wrong. Spiritually dead people can do really good things, but our heart's condition is still rebellious to God. We are still on the throne as we do these things. God is not on the throne, and we are not doing these things for his glory. Do you see the difference there? Listen to these, oh, these descriptions, if you will, of Romans 1 and 2 Timothy 3. Just check how many of these have ever applied to your heart. 
Maybe you didn't live them out. You know, maybe, you know, you, you saw Jesus, you know, sometimes, you know, he would look at the religious leaders and he would say, okay, so you haven't committed adultery, but have you done it in your heart? You know, they put their head down. You know, so some of these are heart issues for us, but just see how many of them apply to you. It's going to hurt. Are you ready? They were all filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, skipping to 2 Timothy 3, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. There you go, <laughs> Sally. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. That's me. Want me to go through that list again? See your sins anywhere on that list? I do. Yeah, I know. I know how you feel when, you, we, when we read through that. We may, again, not always act out those struggles, but this is the heart of man. Right there, unregenerate. That list is talking about me. This is why Paul the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament referred to himself as the chief of all sinners. He understood there is nothing good within me that is within my sinful nature. Nothing whatsoever. I got a call from a brother in the church this past Wednesday morning. It was a great conversation, but he called to confess a sin that he had been struggling with in his heart. And he was going through this book, and as he was answering the questions at the end of the book, it just was like that dagger. So he picked up the phone and he called me. And he began to, you know, confess some things, some pride and some envy. And I so appreciated that transparency because, again, that's who we are trying to be as a church. But my response back to him was very much, me too. Me too, brother. I'm with you. Same struggles, same pride, same envy. You are not on an island by yourself. When Larry Kimball stood up here about two months ago and confessed real lifelong struggle with real sin, he confessed it before this church, before God, and before the whole world we had a couple of people that came to us later within the next couple of weeks and they said, oh my gosh, I thought I was the only one that had this struggle. And it was liberating to see someone come out and to be honest. Me too. I get it. Same struggle, same sin. The doctrine that we are discussing, and I said it earlier, is total depravity. And it's the belief that apart from God's redemptive work through the gospel, that we are spiritually dead and 100% incapable of 
saving ourselves. And this doctrine flies in the face of most religions known to man, which will be more unfolded when we jump into Ephesians uh, chapter 2 later. But this leads to our first truth of the day. This one definitely is in your worship guide if you're a note taker. Apart from Christ, in case you haven't heard it yet this morning, in case I haven't underscored it loudly enough or boldly enough, apart from Christ, we are all spiritually, say it, dead. <laughs> right? That's us. One of my favorite parables I didn't put it up here. If you want to look it up, you can, but it's in Luke 18. But if not, maybe jot this down, put a, an asterisk beside of it, and go back and look at it later. This is one of my favorites. It underscore, underscores what we're talking about. Just listen to this. This is Jesus. Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, Pharisee, a religious leader of the time, and the other was a tax collector. Tax collectors were despised for lots of reasons that we won't get into. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I wasn't pointing at you, Doug this tax collector, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off, this tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, he didn't say it like that. I just lost my tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I love this parable because in it we see two ways of viewing ourselves. Okay? The first one is this I'm okay, I'm not that bad. Trust me, there are worse people in the world than me. I do a lot of good things. I have worked my way into good standing with God, at least more so than other people have. This is how I lived my life up until my sophomore year in college when I had an encounter with a holy God that drove me to my knees. I wasn't that bad. I mean, I did some stupid things, but golly, you should, you should see my friends. I could give you a litany of things that they've done. So I always felt like I was better than them. And somehow that made me think I was okay. The second way of viewing ourselves, my sins are many, my heart is selfish, I am indeed a sinner, incapable of saving myself, my only hope is that somehow God would have mercy on me and save me. I was beating my breast at 3, 4 a.m. saying, oh God, have mercy on me. I am dead. I have rebelled against you and I have hated you. 
unknowingly my whole life. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And he was. A broken and contrite heart, Psalm 51 says, the the Lord will never turn away from. He will never despise. He will never turn away from. There's this, I know, three weeks in a row now, gentle and lowly. You ought to read it. It's a great book. But there's this section in in page 67 I'm going to read to you in 68. It says, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there's a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We're all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There's only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have, listen to this, that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. Only when we compare our sin struggle, our lives with God, will we understand how deep and how dark that sin truly is. Think of John Kuna's sermon if you were here back in January from Isaiah 6. And Isaiah exclaims, woe to me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Woe to me. Because he understood the glory of God and saw himself in comparison to God, not in comparison to his friends. Okay, let's continue to move forward in our passage. Going back to your worship guide or your Bible. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I want you to notice in this passage that as unbelievers that we are followers. And it says two things. We're following the course of this world, which I will come back to shortly. And we are following the prince of the power of the air, who is the enemy himself. And the result of this, what I guess I would call faulty fellowship, is just disobedience against our creator. When we began Ephesians, we preached one particular week on the fact that God has a plan. I think that there were like 13 times in the first chapter that we see either a word or a phrase that shows that from the beginning of time, he has had a plan and is executing specifically to that plan. But guess what? The enemy very, very much has a plan as well. Note the words course of this world. When I looked that up, that phrase really stood out to me. And in studying it, it means a world order, an age, a period of existence. And as we look at the next line pointing to the prince of the power of the air, we better understand that there is indeed an age, a period of existence, and an order in this world in which the enemy, the devil, Satan, or as my friend John Kuna refers to him, Slewfoot, is executing to his own specific plan and his course as well. Consider 
2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, if people aren't hearing it or, or understanding the glory of the gospel, it is veiled to those who are perishing, and in their case, little g, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Yes, he is a conniving snake. He is the great deceiver. I do hate him. I do. And I am angry. I'm still angry at him of the way that he trips people up on a regular basis. It, it angers me with a righteous indignation. But he has a plan, and he has a course. And before coming to Christ, whether we realize it or not, we were blindly following this course where the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life were our trajectory on a daily basis. And you can find those in 1 John 2. If you just look at our world today, I mean, the disarray, the chaos, the confusion, the hatred, the conflict, whether we fully understand it or not, and I don't fully understand it, in his sovereignty, God has chosen to allow the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, to have his way with limitations, within boundaries that God has set. Think about the book of Job. And he is having his way, which is why, as a believer, it can be so frustrating sometimes when you're having a conversation with an unbeliever where there are opposing views because they don't think like we do. They're not looking through scriptural or gospel lenses. They're not. They've been blinded. The God of this age has blinded them. So things that might come out of an unbelieving, unregenerate heart might be, these are examples, you have your own, it's a woman's body, she can do with it what she wants. It's only a fetus, it's not a baby. Marriage should be between two people who love each other, period. Why does it matter if they are the same sex? Or marriage is simply outdated, a man-made institution and not needed. I can choose my own gender. There's nothing wrong with kids exploring sexually before marriage. If there is, even is a God, he has nothing to do with education. There's no place for God in our schools. There's no such thing as absolute truth. And ultimately, what this is leading to is doubt and more disobedience. All of these statements and questions are ultimately taken to this one ultimate question, whether it comes out of their mouths or not, it's in their hearts, it's in their minds, which is this. Does God even exist? Does he even exist? Well, I don't know about you, but I think he's working his plan quite well. If you're ever going to pat Satan on the back and give kudos to him, the guy's got a plan, and he's executing it well, quite well. You have to acknowledge that because we see it we are the frog in the kettle that's slowly being turned up and our world is just reaching a boiling point and they don't even know it they don't even see it and they think we're fools for pointing it out unthinkable 50 years ago 20 years ago 10 years ago even five years ago 
No way you would think that we would be having the conversations that we're having today. How did that happen? Because there is a course in this world. And before Christ, I followed that course quite well, thank you very much. But here's the thing. Remember, the Lord hasn't given the enemy total authority in this world. His days are numbered. In verse number 7, which we will hit in a few weeks, I promise, it speaks of a coming age when Christ returns and when he reigns. Revelation 12 speaks of the enemy knowing that his time is short, so he comes at us with an unholy vengeance to see how much damage that he can cause before he is cast away into eternal chains. It's like the climax of a a fireworks display. And I think we're seeing much of that climax today. And listen, if you are sitting here as an unbeliever, I'm using a lot of D's today, you know, depraved and dead and disobedient. And there was another one, I don't remember, you know. Thank you, doomed. If you're following this little G God, You're deceived. He is deceiving you. Satan will do anything, anything, anything that he can to keep you on the throne of your own life and to keep you from confessing the name Jesus Christ. In Redstone Church Elizabethan, he hates us too. He will do anything he can to disrupt. That's an unintended D word to disrupt us, to cause damage, to cause division. I'm on a roll now, and those aren't even in my notes. He will. It's the little things. It's a little strain of, I can't believe that she said that, that he did that. And it turns into this root of bitterness. I know, I am that guy. It happens to me. I confessed yesterday, a hundred times, these struggles. It's easy. He will do it. He will do it to us. There is a course. But lest I digress too far, the point, yes, there is a point, is that before Christ, we followed the course set by the enemy. And as we followed him, truth number two, we saw this. Apart from Christ, we were disobedient, followers of the enemy, and as such, we live for ourselves and for our own passions and desires. That's just stating what I just now told you. And I think what Scripture clearly says, our own passions and desires, yes. Let's continue with the passage, and we will see it. You want me to back up? Everybody get that? Disobedient, ourselves, passions, desires. Continuing with the passage. Amongst whom we all once lived in, and here it is, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. I mean, think back. Think back at the choices that you made before Christ. We're not getting into after Christ how sometimes we can still make those same choices and we make mistakes because we're all going to sin and if you say that you have no sin you're lying to yourself you know even after christ there will be times of sin there will be that's not today's message we will see that later when we get into walk 
But think about the time before you came to Christ. You know, have a good look. Sometimes it's good look to look back. Hurtful, but it's good to look back and to remember. I mean, Paul did. Every time you read the book of Acts, you can see that when he gave his testimony, he always went back and looked at the things that he was doing. The stonings, the imprisonments, even supporting murder. But when we look back, we quickly come to our third truth of today, this final conclusion. Apart from Christ, we're doomed. We're just doomed. And as we finish out our passage for today, we see that this sinful condition was simply our nature. Continuing with the passage, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I lied because I am a liar. I deceived because I am a deceiver. I put myself first over and over and over again because by nature, I am prideful and I am arrogant. And I have been that way from the time that I was born into this world. Very much alive, able to feel, taste, see, but very much dead spiritually. Dead, disobedient, doomed, yes. I mean, before Christ, we are and were the walking dead. And what are the ramifications of this lifestyle? Well, Romans 6, 23, which I will finish in a moment, starts off this way. It says, the wages of sin, the result, what's your paycheck? What do you receive from these sins that you have committed? The wages of sin is death. The result of our lives, our actions, our human nature, it was death. We were eternally separated from God and as such should very much fear an earthly death. Now, how's that for an uplifting sermon so far? Are y'all good? We're not going to stop there though. In fact, it was at this point in my sermon preparations that I had a glory to God exclamation out loud that scared my dogs to death, right? It was beautiful. They barked and howled. They didn't know what had happened. Well, there were a couple of reasons for that. The first is the next two words that we will be preaching on next week. The next two words in verse number four say, but God but God. And now the rest of it is just, it's too much. It's too much. But the second reason were these two words in this passage, were not two words, several words actually, that I found in Romans 7, 24 through 25. We read it if you're doing CBR, Community Bible Reading. If you don't, there's books in the back. You can have one. Um, but you're just reading the Bible together within community. We happen to be reading through Romans this past week. But in Romans 7, verses 24 through 25, there's a question that's asked, and then there's an answer that's given. And when I saw that answer, I just exclaimed, glory to God. Let me read it to you. 
wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Who will deliver me? Who indeed is the question? And he goes on to answer it through the next verse and underscores it a few verses later. Listen to this. Here's the answer. Who? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he goes on to say in chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation, no fear of death, no punishment for my sins for those who are, Sam's sermon two weeks ago, in Christ Jesus. Who will rescue me? Jesus is my only hope. The sinless Savior, Emmanuel, who was God himself, the Son of God, coming to give himself for us because he was sinless. He was able to resurrect, and that's what the kids are learning about this morning. And when he resurrected from the dead, he defeated sin forever. His one, one sacrifice was sufficient to cover every one of our sins yesterday today and tomorrow and he conquered the last enemy which was death once for all who jesus and as i finish romans 6 23 which i started with earlier what are the wages of sin it's death but the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our Lord. Yeah, this is a hallelujah moment, people. It is. And then it took me back to our passage where I saw these red words. Look at it with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Were and once Sam Adams would tell us, our little prepositional phrase friend, that these words are very much past tense. As believers, you and I are not who we were. 2 Corinthians 5 even goes so, goes so far as to say that we are new creatures, a new creation. And as such, the prince of the power of the air no longer has authority over us he no longer has authority over you. He may be barking out orders at you just like he did before you came to Christ, but you do not have to give in. It is a lie. Believer, you are being deceived if you think that you do. We do not have to carry out the desires of the body and the mind. We don't. The gospel boldly declares he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Romans 6.11 says it this way. Powerful, powerful passage. You also must consider yourselves dead 
Different kind of dead, though, listen. Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Are you dead? Absolutely. I'm still dead, but I'm dead to sin. I can't live in it any longer. Alive to God in Christ Jesus. No longer dead spiritually, but now dead to sin. No longer doomed, but now delivered. No longer living blindly, following the enemy in his course, but rather alive to God in relationship with the Creator. I love this stanza. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. Isn't that beautiful? Adam Stein, quoting someone else, sorry Adam, he doesn't get the glory for this quote, or the credit, he said this on Monday, which will take us to our final truth of the day. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. That one's in your worship guide. Jesus didn't come to make dead people good, or bad people good, but to make dead people alive. This is Adam quoting somebody else. (laughs) Who knows? I love it. That's a hallelujah moment. It's the gospel. Praise God. As we close, here's what I want you to consider. And I am closing. I mean, hear me, church. We are entering into Easter week. Friday is called Good Friday for a reason. For it does commemorate the day that Jesus, the Son of God, died on a cross to pay for all of the sins that we discussed today and that you remembered from looking at your past. All of them. He was perfect. He is perfect. He was sinless. He rose from the dead. And this is why we celebrate Easter. This is what we're going to preach on next Sunday. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection... We have gone from being dead, disobedient, and doomed, totally depraved, to delivered, eternally delivered, and forgiven. And believer, that's the truth I want you to rest in today. I want you to know that. I want you to hear that. I want that to sink into you. Some of you have struggles. And I've used the illustration before of this just choke collar that was around you before you became a believer. And the enemy would bark out orders and you would try to resist, but eventually you would give in, even if you only gave in in your mind and your heart. Jesus comes and he just takes the choke collar away. It's gone. The enemy's still barking out orders and some of us are giving in to those same sins as we once did before we came to Christ. It's a lie from the pit of the hell. You're being deceived. You do not have to give in. Rest in the finished work of Christ. But some of you may be unbelievers, and I've said it once and I'll say it again, and you need to hear it. You're being deceived. The enemy will do anything he can to keep you from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And our prayer this morning is that those scales would fall off of your eyes and that you would reach out 
and proclaim Christ as your only hope. And if you need help with that, we will walk you. We will walk you to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I have taken the passage that you've given to us, declared it as best as I could. But Lord, these are your words, eternal words. And sometimes they hurt, but they lead us to truth. And Christ, you are the truth. You are the way, the truth, and you are the life. And your word says that no one comes to the Father except through you. Just take a few moments We talk too much sometimes. Let's just allow the Holy Spirit to have his way to speak to us, to prod us, to convict us, to challenge us. And then we'll open it up and we'll talk here in a few moments. Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would pour on us, just pour down on us, rain down on us in the same way that the rain is hitting the roof of this building and the ground in this region. We're constantly in need of reminders about who we are in Christ and what you have done. Challenge us, change us, remind us, convict us. Lord, remind us that we have reason to celebrate. Spur within us, Lord, our own hallelujah moments where we boldly declare your praises silently or out loud. Take us back to the gospel this morning as a church in Christ's name we pray.